There's something out there, and it's making people sick. You can't go out, can't see your friends, can't shop, spectate, or sing without being at risk. It may seem like there's only one thing left to do. Panic. This week, we're going to ponder how panic rises up during a pandemic and leads to mass hysteria. We'll also explore why instead of working together, we tend to isolate ourselves from others and resort to discrimination and stigma. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to keep you calm about COVID by talking about the panic of past pandemics. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Outbreaks of infectious disease are troubling, but because they are small, they don't worry too many people. Epidemics tend to reach a wider audience, but don't seem to cause worldwide concern. A pandemic, however, well, that catches the world's attention and can grip it for months, if not years. Over the last century, we've seen different types of pandemics. Some of them you know, like the influenza pandemic of 1918, in 2009. And let's not forget about COVID-19. But there have been others you may not have realized were pandemics, such as HIV and antibiotic resistance. And there have also been close calls. Who doesn't remember Ebola, Zika, and mad cow disease? Pandemics and even some larger epidemics tend to have common psychological effects on people. Most of the time, it's a sense of fear. And with fear comes anxiety, and that can quickly manifest into panic. This week, we're going to take a peek into panic with Mark Honigsbaum. He's a senior lecturer in journalism at the City University of London. He combines research from the medical and environmental humanities and the sociology of science to better understand how we as humans react to various health issues, such as medical treatments and vaccines. Last year, he wrote The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria, and Hubris, and it offers a fascinating glimpse into how pandemics affect us. I recommend you pick it up and read it. After, of course, you listen to his interview. ...about infections, and ultimately pandemics. Essentially, pandemics, infectious disease, aren't only about the biological phenomenon of the infection and how it spreads. They also reveal social pathologies, by which I mean that they reach into every aspect of society and human life. So for me, following the story of an epidemic or a pandemic is both a biological and epidemiological whodunit. But much more than that, you then follow um, the ramifications and effects that those epidemics have throughout society. I find it interesting that you call it a mystery story. The unknown is so fascinating when it's fiction, and yet so terrifying when it's real. And I'm curious, does that mystery alone lend to why people tend to panic as an individual, and then eventually develop this into hysteria when it comes to the masses? Yeah, so to interpret what you're asking, uh, of course, we're terrified by the uncertainty terrifies us, right? We like to think that there's a reason and rationale for everything. And, you know, I think perhaps that explains the appeal of religion and, and faiths. But speaking personally, you know, I'm agnostic and my 
faith, or this is true for many modern people, is really science and scientific rationalism. So we have learned an awful lot about how pathogens and infections function. And we've made tremendous progress in controlling lots of infectious diseases. Uh, but the more we know, uh, the more it is we seem to discover that we do not know. And I think that uncertainty is a source of you know, this fear and panic, fear of the unknown. And another theme of my book, of course, is that sometimes too much knowledge or the wrong type of knowledge can also lead scientists astray and therefore undermine faith in science. In an odd way, if you go back to the latter half of the 19th century, really before you know, the advent of the, the modern biological sciences, you know, the birth of bacteriology and, and even the birth of epidemiology, the early Victorian epidemiologists uh, hoped that better knowledge of the causes um, of infectious disease would, quote unquote, banish panic. But from my perspective, writing over 100, almost 150 years later, actually that knowledge is itself now a source of panic. I think a really good example of that would be the swine flu pandemic that occurred in 2009. If this outbreak had occurred, say, at the end of the 19th century, most likely we would not even have registered it. Why? Because in the event, the swine flu virus caused not very severe illness. It blended in with all the other colds and coughs and seasonal influenzas that are always circulating. But we didn't have the privilege of not knowing about it in 2009. On the contrary, it was top of all the news bulletins and there were you know, weekly press conferences from the World Health Organization. So that's a bit of a game changer, I think. When you have something that is unknown and you're trying to bring light on it or, or give people an idea of what it's all about, you tend to create volatility in knowledge. We do have this kind of measurement, just not for health. In fact, it's for the stock market. It's called the VIX. Mm. Whenever something is going bad in the stock market and this VIX or volatility index goes up, they, they say that there's a contagion in the market. They don't know what it is, but eventually they do figure it out. And once they have an idea, then they can take measures to reduce the risk and bring down volatility and eventually get back to normal, which kind of is how pandemics work. I just find it intriguing that the knowledge itself, as we're gaining more and more information about contagion, or in this particular case, a pandemic, can lead to more problems and the initiation and sustainability of panic. Well, I mean, knowledge is a double-edged sword, right? Um, so think about the way um, we first picked up the signal about this pandemic, COVID-19. It was through um, ProMed um, and other organizations that monitor um, you know, um, the internet, emails, social media, SMS messaging for chatter about unusual disease outbreaks. Uh, so the first signal of COVID-19 was picked up by ProMed by um, uh, actually uh, um, one of their editors based in New York. When she picked up this chatter from um, clinicians in Wuhan talking about outbreak of atypical pneumonias of unknown cause, uh, and then later it seems like a SARS-like virus. Um, so these digital communication information technologies give us the, the ability 
to reach into parts of the world that used to be known as the silent places on the map, but they're no longer silent, uh, at least not you know if you have an internet connection and a browser. So that's good. It's a good thing if that means that we're alerted ahead of time to something that in the past we wouldn't have known about for many months until it was too late. But that can also be a source of panic when you know you then make inquiries to the authorities, in this case China, and they deny it or cover it up. So the problem we're always balancing is being able to pick up this chatter but not having full transparency. So this is the problem we have in the modern age. That brings me to one of the words that comes up numerous times in your book. Actually, it's in the title, hubris. Mm. It's a word that I absolutely love. But a lot of people may not be familiar with that particular word. So for the listeners, can you first describe what hubris is and then how it relates to pandemics and eventually that panic and hysteria? Well, hubris goes back you know, to this ancient Greek idea of unwarranted arrogance, the idea that when men or humans, let's say, get above their station and start to compare themselves to the gods, they're going to be brought down by that arrogance or excess pride in their own abilities, or in the case of science, overconfidence in scientific knowledge. Um, a very simple way of thinking about it is complacency. So when we become complacent, that's when we uh, risk giving in to hubris uh, or you know being swept up by those feelings. So really what I'm trying to say is in every epidemic and pandemic, we certainly, you know, in the modern period from which I date from 1916 onwards, we've seen that our own knowledge can blind us to the gaps in our knowledge or the, all the things that we don't know or that we think we know, but we don't really know well enough, right? And kind of what I track in the book is I follow t 10 epidemics, pandemics uh, of the last 100 years and show how each time scientists and so-called public health experts fell into this hubristic trap of thinking that they had a pretty good idea of what was causing the outbreak, or what the pathogen was, and how nearly every time they were caught wrong-footed or flat-footed. I come from the world of infection prevention and control, and what you're telling me sounds so familiar to what happens each and every day in healthcare facilities. We know how to prevent outbreaks, but it just never seems to be fully incorporated. We don't ever get to that 100% compliance. And I'm wondering if maybe we can establish some kind of regulation or guidelines that's based on infection prevention and control to at least limit the amount of panic that we would see in society. Um, I think I need to re rewind your question slightly to what I see as the principal source of this, this panic. And I think it comes down to epidemiology. It's all about the numbers. Right. You know, if you look at the 1918 influenza pandemic, we now know, or we're told by epidemiologists who've gone back and, you know, crunched the numbers globally, that between 50 million to 100 million people died in that pandemic. Uh, but this certainly wasn't what people knew or thought at the time. Um, you know, immediately after the pandemic was over, I think the Times uh, estimated that, you know, perhaps uh, 6 million people had died worldwide. That was the received wisdom. So you have to think about today, of course, we're used, and we've seen this with, with COVID-19 played out in real time. Every day we're treated 
to the latest figures, the number of people tested, the number who have tested positive, the numbers have been hospitalized, and what proportion of those individuals have died, right? And we're familiar with terms like the R0, the reproduction number of the virus, and this all-important number, the case fatality rate. The, the, those numbers themselves create a sense of fear and panic. And that's helpful to a certain extent because you want people to take the threat seriously from a public health point of view. You want them to, you know, in the absence of vaccines and you know, antiviral treatments, to socially distance and follow uh, all the advice in order to dampen down and flatten the curve. But we're already seeing, and we've seen throughout this, quite a lot of pushback against that because uh, I think populations are starting to get wise to this uh, and say, well, hang on, there are lots of other things that you know cause people to die, but why aren't we talking about all those diseases at the same time? And a lot of this comes down to this idea of the excess death rate, which um, I warrant most of your listeners and, and many people had never even thought about before COVID-19. But this is the principal way, going back to the Victorian period, that influenza epidemics were made visible to science. And basically, people went back and looked at um, cemeteries uh, and noticed that um, you know there were more burials uh, during influenza epidemics than in other periods. And they then said, well, what are causing all these excess deaths? The association with influenza seemed to be associated with influenza. So that was one of the principal ways that influenza, which had previously been seen as just a familiar and usually mild disease that came around every season, was converted into, no, this could be a really serious plague-like pandemic disease. I think anybody who wants to learn more about pandemics in general should really look up vital statistics and history mm. and maybe even go back to journals like The Lancet back in the 1800s. It's so different than what we see today. I mean, they would have these discussions and arguments right there in the text. They talk about treatments. They talk about what works, what doesn't. And sometimes they would even troll each other. It was kind of like social media back then. But the thing is that in those days, it was private. Now, everything is being debated right in front of us. And I feel that that, in fact, is leading to distrust in public health authorities. It's leading to some kind of unrest in the general mindset of the population. And, and now I understand that this is something that researchers, scientists, anyone in academic communities do on a regular basis. Heck, I've been involved in these types of conversations. But I think we have to be a bit more careful now because if we don't allow ourselves to be more understanding of the audience, we could ourselves lead to the development of panic in the public completely inadvertently. Yeah. I also say, you know, if, if we are talking specifically about panic and what drives these responses. So I think we really have to look both at public health, science and public health, but also the media. I kind of really got into this subject through my sort of historical studies of the 1918 to 1919 so-called Spanish influenza pandemic, um, which for most of, um, most of the 20th century was known as the forgotten pandemic. 
So even though it killed an awful lot of people, you would think, well, if that many people die, surely everyone was panicked and they were talking about it all the time. When you actually go back, you see, except for the brief period where you, you couldn't avoid the names of the dead being listed in the obituary columns of the Times newspaper and other newspapers, uh, it really didn't register uh, that greatly on the population. Uh, why was that? Well, there wasn't all this sort of prominent public health messaging. There weren't chief medical officers and chief scientists briefing the public every day, warning them about this threat that was gathering pace and sort of putting out messages that you need to isolate, otherwise our hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. And then on top of that, partly because the influenza pandemic coincided with World War I, Britain, France, Germany, and also the United States uh, after um, April 18, uh, 1916 were all party to the conflict, um, there was an active attempt to dampen down any news that might frighten or spook uh, civilian populations. Uh, so if you take away active public health messaging and then you have newspapers um, actively not, you know, kind of censoring those messages, which is the precise opposite of what we have today, <laughs> then you, you don't see these panic responses writ large. You do, of course, when you get an outbreak of something like cholera. So there are certain diseases like cholera, like yellow fever, like Ebola, which are terrifying in and of themselves. Uh, that's, not, that's not true, generally speaking, of respiratory diseases, where the worst affected patients are either lying in bed at home or on a closed hospital ward. Panic is an individual reaction and is most certainly a problem especially if it's someone you care about going through this experience. But when panic spreads across a population, better known as mass hysteria, then it can become a very dangerous thing. When a population all of a sudden starts to think irrationally, bad decisions are made. What's worse is that those decisions may end up hindering the strategies developed to beat the causative agent. Problems such as stigma, belief in unproven treatments, and resistance to vaccines have all been seen. When they happen, the situation on the ground worsens and the pandemic continues to spread like wildfire. We may have already seen this happen with COVID-19 in some countries, but Mark Honigsbaum has found this process occurs almost every time there is a global threat. It's just a matter of time. What's even more troubling is that sometimes these decisions made in reaction to fear may end up sparking more waves of hysteria. And unfortunately, more cases. As we've seen with COVID-19 and other pandemics of the past, as you have in your book, stigma becomes a major problem and can seemingly spark panic. Does the mere presence of infected people lead to that panic? Or is it more a societal perspective of what is happening that leads to people getting scared and then taking these irrational views and actions? I think it depends quite a bit on the pathogen itself. So um, generally speaking, um, very generally speaking, respiratory pathogens aren't usually associated with stigma. Why? Because nearly everyone in the population is equally susceptible to them. They don't generally pick out particular social groups. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. But if you're talking about Bloodborne infections like Ebola or HIV, HIV, 
or the classic sort of 19th century diseases which were born by, you know, the oral fecal roots such as cholera uh, or, or typhoid or, you know, diseases that were spread by anthropods or insects like typhus. So those sort of classic diseases of the 19th century were very much prone to stigma. Why? Because the sort of populations or individuals who were seen to be spreading them were usually minority groups or ethnic groups. So cholera was associated with the Irish. Typhus was associated with Jewish refugees, immigrants from Eastern Europe, arriving either in Britain or the United States. And of course, HIV, it was very quickly branded the gay plague. Whereas, in fact, we now know from looking at isolates of HIV and tracking them back in time, that it was already circulating very widely in North America and Haiti long before it was identified uh, in you know, uh, gay men in Los Angeles and New York. So I think quite a lot of this has got to do with the way in which science and the different medical sciences make these pathogens visible and associate them with particular risk, risky behavior or groups who are seen to pose more of a risk than others. I find the gonorrhea story is a prime example of that. Even mm. though it wasn't really a pandemic, mm-hmm. it did spread quite a bit around the world after World War II. I think it's a prime example of a situation where a certain denomination of people get very concerned that there is an infection in their community and it's spreading around, but it happens to be related to an unapproved or disapproved activity. In this particular case, the idea of banning sex work seemed to be more effective and perhaps more palatable than pointing the finger at individuals who tended to be promiscuous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I mean, sexual, sexually transmitted diseases are a very good example of this, as you say, largely because of our sort of puritanical and sometimes hypocritical attitudes. If we think about HIV AIDS, you know, there was this famous case of where um, the CDC were mapping the outbreak in California. And, you know, they designated the uh, Canadian flight lieutenant, Guyton Dugas. He was patient O in a cluster of some kind, but it certainly came through as, as patient zero. Um, this whole idea of patient zero or the idea that certain individuals are like typhoid Mary, they're super spreaders, right? Um, so a lot of these ideas, we, you know, they're, they're partly embedded in epidemiology. Um, and it comes back to this idea of kind of what attracts everyone to epidemics and that they're always like a sort of a mystery and a detective story. You know, epidemiologists are the disease detectives. But then, you know, when we come to write up these these things and, you know, uh, popular writers and to a certain degree, historians are guilty of this as much as anyone. There's a tendency to play into these narratives of patient zeros and super spreaders, people who silently carry the infection or hidden carriers. You know, all these terms are very loaded. I know. And then that leads to paranoia. I mean, it's so sad and yet seems to be a natural part of a pandemic threat. The one that got me happened a number of years ago when there was this rumor that migrants from Central America were bringing Ebola north. I mean, that's just ludicrous. The virus was in Africa, not the Americas. But for some politicians, the message seemed to work, if only for a while. 
And I find that troubling because when you merge two different types of stigma or prejudice, it might be able to serve a purpose, but it can also explode into something that is incredibly dangerous, like xenophobia or worse. Mm. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this comes back to the idea of contagion. The word contagion means to bring, contagio means to bring two things together. So it's not a great idea to bring people, you know, you or I together with a pathogen to which we've been never been exposed and to which we may have zero immunity. But the idea of bringing us together as a community is also, I think, really important because that's, after all, how in the absence of medical interventions, we actually combat and overcome these infections, right? And I think we're seeing this now in time of COVID where we're all having to physically distance like mad. And yes, there is quite a lot of paranoia, certainly among people who are taking the advice to wear masks seriously, to socially distance and keep one meter apart. But at the same time, we're all using Zoom and other technologies to keep up those connections, right? Because that's that's what defines us as 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 human beings. That's that's part of our common humanity. So I, I think that's another fascinating thing about epidemics, how they confront us with these social aspects that we usually just take for granted. And that makes me wonder, and maybe you can help me out with this. When the vaccine came out for the 2009 pandemic flu, H1N1 PDM, if you will, I remember seeing those long, long lineups. It was almost like there was a different type of panic, one that was really related to getting the shot so you know you were going to be safe. But when all the empty syringes were counted, it was only about 30 to 40 percent of the population in some place that even got in line. I would have imagined that panic would have had a much larger scope and much larger effect on the population, and yet it didn't happen. Was there something, is there something that prevents people from going and finding the right answer and then trusting that answer so we can get back to normal faster? Yeah, I, I think in this, this, um, in this scenario, this circumstance you're, you're talking about, I don't think that panic is necessarily all that helpful a term. So people who are taking on board the public health advice to get vaccinated and are more, more likely to be people who, you know, they're, clearly they're concerned about their health, they want to be protected. But the key thing is that, um, you know, they're invested in medical science to some extent and they trust the expertise or people in authority. What we're seeing, of course, now in the modern period, this has been true, I suppose, at least for the last 20 or 30 years, is that there is a growing segment of the population who who either don't trust in medical technologies or, or at least are hesitant about using them. And these people may also not really believe in the threat that this virus, whatever it is, poses, right? So, and I think this, a lot of this goes back to what we're talking about when we're talking about hubris and complacency, because in the period from World War II up to about the 1970s, uh, it was a golden period for the conquest of infectious disease. So we developed vaccines against all the childhood diseases that used to kill you in the Victorian period. And we developed vaccines against polio and measles. We eradicated smallpox. So, you know, a lot of people born 
1970s onwards would never have experienced um, these sort of childhood ailments that were a rite of passage for children in even the 1950s and 60s. So, I mean, part of that, part of what maybe COVID-19 is doing, the coronavirus is doing, is reminding people that infectious diseases haven't gone away and that they can still pose a mortal threat. And by the way, it's not just elderly people over 60 or who, who are at risk. You know, we've seen some children dying and we've seen young adults with supposedly healthy immune systems become COVID long haulers and develop these really debilitating, diverse conditions. So I, I, I hope that one of the good things will come out of this is that as we look at, or we face the the prospects of maybe a second wave in the fall, that everyone goes out and gets their influenza shot because you sure as hell don't want to risk influenza and COVID at the same time. We're at the end of the conversation, but we can keep the calming coming. I'm sure you have questions about what has happened with this COVID-19 pandemic. And I can certainly think of at least one example that's affected all of us. But now it's your turn to ask. Tweet me at JATetro or send me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you want to hear your voice on the show, head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and post your question. We'll take several of them and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Mark Honigsbaum and his book. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Stay safe. Don't panic. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Sass.